shape, right? What do you want to do tonight? The same thing we do every night, Pinky. Try to take over the world. The Pinky and the Brain. Yes, Pinky and the Brain. One is a genius, the other's insane. The laboratory mice. The genes have been sliced. They're Pinky. They're Pinky and the Brain. of Pinky and the Brain, the real star of Pinky and the Brain. When Brain and I are preparing to take over the world, I have myself a big pile of food pellets. I say, and then I watch Monsters, Madness and Magic because it makes me say, Nerve! I really mean that. Goodbye! Hello, fans of Justin. Yakko Warna here. You know what? When we're in the water tower, the only podcast we watch and listen to is Monsters, Madness, and Magic. That's true. Just me, Wacko, and Dot. Uh, not so much Dr. Scratch and Sniff. Good night, everybody! Creeps, Raphael of the original, that's right, the OG TMNT here. Hey, check this out. This is Raphael, and you genius people are listening to Monsters, Madness, and Magic. Cowabunga, dude! Greetings, boils and ghouls. This is your comrade, the Crypt. Keeper here, reporting dead from the sanctuary of the strange. Tonight's macabre myth is a fright-filled feature, one overflowing with monsters, madness, and magic. <laughs> Welcome to the Monsters Madness and Magic podcast. I am your host, Justin. This afternoon, we're joined by a very special guest, veteran voice actor and singer, whom you may know from his roles as Raphael in the original Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Yakko and Pinky from the Animaniacs, and many more. The man of a million voices, Mr. Rob Paulson. Rob, how the hell are you doing this afternoon? Well, I'll tell you what, Justin. I'm breathing. I'm not in jail, but the day's not over yet. <laughs> The day is young. Right off the bat, your fabulous listeners slash viewers, look what happens to handsome Justin's face. And I'm just looking, I'm just an average old man. But watch what happens when I say this. Hey, God, Justin, nerf. I'm uh, six years old again. Right? I haven't changed my expression. I've just changed and, you know, obviously done well-known characters. But your incredibly wonderful reaction my new friend, is what is so great about this gig. People like you are nice enough to have me on. I get recognized more and more because I've been around for so long. The overarching takeaway from the experience, whether it's you and me chatting or meeting someone who recognizes me at a Starbucks, if I say turtle power or <laughs> it's Donatello, whatever, they, to a man and woman, smile broadly. Sometimes they even get tearful because it's like, oh my God, this is such a remarkable part of my, my child. 
I can't get enough of it, and I love the opportunity to to get a chance to share with you and your audience. It's it's a lovely way to move through life, you know. It's almost like a superpower, you know. You can take us back you know in what? time with just your voice. It kind of is, and what I hear often, mostly, is like you just said, really sweet, kind. Oh my God, I'm eight years old. I'm six years old. I'm 15 years old. I'm back in college. Whatever, because Animaniacs and Pinky the Brain were purposefully not written just for little kids. They're Indeed. <laughs> Right. And we know that because now Mr. Spielberg at 74 years old has brought the show back again and it's doing great again with an exponentially larger audience. But in addition to your wonderful reaction, often I hear people who tell me that the, the general feeling is, oh, my God, it, it, this made my childhood. You're the I grew up with you, which is not the same as I threw up with you. <laughs> <laughs> then you'll run into people who say, I got to tell you, Mr. Paulson, but for Animaniacs, but for Ninja Turtles, but for Goof Troop or The Mask or The Tick or Biker, whatever, my childhood would have been an absolute mess. I went through two divorces with my mother and her husbands. I was in the foster system from the time I was six months old to 18. I joined the, the the marines out of high school because i really didn't have any direction i went to iraq it was brutal but i had my animaniacs dvds my fellow soldiers and i would watch when we got back things that you could never imagine that are so beyond a paycheck or a, an action figure and and i i'm so grateful that i have a a huge audience because of this credibility that i have but the but which means i've been around a while but i'm young enough to travel around and healthy enough to meet people and understand the extent to which these characters connect with people justin it's freaking ridiculous in the most glorious way right and you never know what someone is going never. through when they're a child and it's the little things sometimes that you hold on to just to get you through the night sometimes I mean, you know what you said that a lot more succinctly than an old ninja turtle <laughs> it's no wonder you're successful that's exactly <laughs> right they hold on to those things just to get them through the goddamn night exactly and I've never experienced that. My kid has never experienced that. Millions have. And talk about heroic lives and getting through the other side and having a healthy family and a healthy relationship with their wife or their husband. And then they drive two or three states to come and stand in a line to tell me how much I slash Ninja Turtles meant to them. My God, this is so much bigger than my paycheck, man. It's crazy. Rob, why don't you take us back in time to when you were a kid? So what, what kind of films, music, books, and comics and stuff sparked creativity well, as a kid? as I helped invent fire, it was a <laughs> long time ago. People don't know this, but I was the entertainment at the Last Supper. I was Shecky of Arimathea. Jesus, what a party that was. Anyway, my earliest memories of television and music were probably in the early 1960s. I'm 65 years old. Elvis Hound Dog was the, was the hip the year I was born. Uh, in terms of popular music, for my my biggest memory was probably the Beatles because that was 1964 mm. and I was eight. That's when, and I like everybody else, it really is similar to where I was when the Kennedy assassination occurred. I was in second grade and I walked to school. My second grade teacher, Mrs. Sundak, told us we had to go home. I remember that clearly on November of 1963. Then the Ed Sullivan show when my uh, we had a one color TV in our extended family. My aunt and uncle in Detroit had a color TV and we sat in front of the television watching Ed Sullivan on Sunday night and the Beatles. And like a zillion other creative types, I didn't become a rock star, but it hooked me. And music is my first love. I was a singer before anything. I had fortunately uh, two parents who were also involved in community theater and had a deep love and appreciation for the arts and inspired that creativity and that interest 
interest in me and my siblings, of which I have three, a brother and two sisters, hmm. who are all performers of various types. My brother, Mike, lives in Manhattan, and he went to New York to be an actor. He did very well, and then he decided to go into the financial industry. He's doing even greater. And with respect to me, they created a monster. <laughs> and one of the early cartoons I remember was a show called Milton the Monster. For me, the cartoons were Felix the Cat, Flintstones, Tom Slick, Rocky and Bullwinkle, The Usual Suspects, and oh, Johnny Quest was a huge one. Loved Johnny Quest. Johnny Quest used to be a primetime animated show on ABC. I think it was Friday night. Primetime animation is not a new thing. This was 1965, maybe. Mm. Tim Matheson was the voice of Johnny Quest. Interestingly, a zillion years later, my first regular job in animation in Hollywood was voicing Haji, Johnny's sidekick. From the original show, there was a reboot in the mid-80s. And trust me, that beautiful irony wasn't lost on a kid from Detroit. <laughs> my parents were very smart, Justin, because they, they were, in high school, I was in a lot of rock and roll bands. And my parents were like, okay, here's the deal. You can listen to as much Led Zeppelin with headphones, the who, because we just can't listen. I get it. You can listen to as much Led Zeppelin, The Who, Beatles, Emerson, Lincoln, Palmer, Genesis, Yes, Jethro Tull, all day long as you want, Sex Pistols, whatever you want. But you have to promise to listen to as much Prokofiev, Mahler, Shostakovich, Rachmaninoff, Mozart, all the, you know, Debussy, and Sinatra, Ella, Johnny Mercer, the Gershwins, whatever. Because their point was, we get that you guys have your own good music. Whether we get it or not is right. not the issue. You get it. But the people whom you are inspired by and by their own admission, you listen to Paul McCartney speak or Keith Emerson before he passed away. All these rock and roll stars look back and say, oh, my God, are you kidding me? I, I listened to John Anderson from Yes. The first big concert I saw was Yes. And their opening to the show when the lights came down was a very soft, beautiful, lilting, melodic, symphonic music, which was transfixing. But it was Stravinsky. It was the Firebird Suite. It was 100 years old. There's maybe 80 years old by the time Yes used it. And it was exactly what my parents were talking about. I'm like, holy shit. Now when my kid says, well, he's old now, but when my kid said to me in, in grade school, hey, dad, I want you to listen to this uh, this piece of hip hop, this bit of hip hop, forgive me, I can't remember the the artist, Gangsta's Paradise. That's Coolio. Coolio. Yep. He yep. said, check out Coolio. So he played it. And I said, oh. So I said, let me put this in for you. Slide. And he says, been living most our life, living in a pastime paradise. Mm -hmm. He said, that guy, that guy ripped off Coolio's beats. I said, no, no. Coolio didn't rip it off. He paid him. But this is Stevie Wonder. This was written when I was in high school, just out of high school. Yep. And my kid loved Stevie Wonder from the time he was eight years old because he was turned on to it ostensibly by Coolio. So my parents knew all of that and they were so smart because all of that background, all of that interest mm -hmm. and appreciation and love for great stuff. The reason people still go to see the Kentucky Symphony, the New York Philharmonic, the it could be they could be go they could go to the Flint Michigan Symphony Orchestra. It doesn't matter how highbrow the players are. That music is timeless. Exactly. And, and that's what it's about. So by the time I got to Hollywood, I was only 22, but I'd been on the road for three years doing live theater and music, and I'd learned to read music because I was inspired by my 12th grade choir teacher who took me aside one day and said, you know, you've got a terrific ear. You're pretty good at mimicking, but you're also a really good singer. You should learn to read music. And I, oh my God, Miss Mobby, I don't know. No. She said, Robbie, I'm telling you, it'll never serve you wrong. If nothing else, it'll be a really cool thing for you and your kids someday. And I'll be damned. When I got Animaniacs at 36 years old, the first person I thought of was Miss Mobby. <laughs> one of the 
I got that job was because I could go in, sing Tunisia, Morocco, Uganda, Angola, Zimbabwe, Djibouti, Botswana, right off the bat, and read the music right off the bat. And Animaniacs was in large part about music. And I, uh, the living example of that axiom that luck is when opportunity meets preparation. Little did I know that I'd been preparing since the time I heard Hound Dog <laughs> till I said to the producers who were friends of mine before we did Animaniacs, I'd worked with them on Tiny Tunes, and I said, if you guys don't hire me for this, you're making a mistake. It was not arrogant. It was confident. I knew I had to audition anyway, but I was so confident precisely because my parents and people took an interest along the way and said, you're pretty good. You can be better. And to this day, I still work at getting better because people took the time to tell me that you got some raw stuff here, pal. I love now being in a circumstance where maybe I can help others do the same thing because there's nothing greater than being an old man. And I go to work every day doing essentially what got me in trouble in seventh grade. <laughs> the small T, but my job is to be a blue collar worker in the dream factory, man. I make, I'm in the happy business, Justin. How much better can that get? So I owe my parents and people who took an interest along the way, an enormous debt. Ultimately now, of course, the biggest debt I owe it to the people who are kind enough to watch and listen. It's all about the fans. What you touched on music is 100% true. It's almost like a Russian doll effect. You know, you start with your modern exactly. metal, that goes to rock and roll, then back to blues, and then the Beethoven. You know, it's all it's sure. a line. It's a linear line. It is a linear line. Mm -hmm. I did an episode of the, the cool thing about my about being me now is that I'm old enough to have been around and done a lot of really cool shit. And one of which was an episode of Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. It used to be a cartoon show at Hanna-Barbera. We did an episode on the birth of rock and roll. And I got to work that morning at Hanna-Barbera in Hollywood. And the director in those days was Gordon Hunt, who was Helen Hunt's father and terrific acting coach, a highly respected acting coach and, and theater director. And he directed Smurfs and Johnny Quest and all the snorks, all the things I worked on at Hanna-Barbera. So one day I get there and he says, hey, Robbie, I don't know if you saw the call sheet, but the guest this week for the birth of rock and roll is Little Richard. And I said, oh. you mean you mean Richard Pennyman, the Little Richard? He goes, yeah. <laughs> he said, you want to sit next to him? I said, of course I want to sit next to him. Sorry. About 10 minutes later, Mr. Pennyman comes in with his posse, got about four very handsome young men, all dressed to the nines. And Little Richard wasn't gay. He was ecstatic. I mean, he was just <laughs> makeup, but exactly what one would expect from Little Richard, the real deal. It wasn't contrived. He was Little Richard Pennyman. And the, at this time, he was probably around 50, so maybe a little older. He just died at, what, 85 or something? So he's probably 50-something, 25 years older than I at the time. And we started talking. Before we started working, I, I just had to ask him about He's Little Richard. You got to, yeah. He's this. How many chances are you going to get to talk to Little Richard? It was. Only, I think I've only asked for two autographs in my life, one of which was his. And he signed my script. It said, to Rob, God loves you so much, Richard Pennyman. Beautiful. And I, I said, oh, my God, what, what a life. I said, you worked with the Beatles. He said, oh, no, no. The Beatles worked for me. The Beatles opened for me. And he's right. And the Beatles, if you can remember, did Long Tall Sally. The Beatles did, I think they did Tutti Frutti. I don't know. They did Little Richard songs. They Richard inspired Paul, John, George, and Ringo. Then I said, I, I got to hear you tell me this. Jimi Hendrix was your guitar player. He said, oh, yeah. I love Jimmy. So I fired him. I said, what? He goes, yeah, I fired him. He's too pretty. <laughs> and he said, he was too pretty. He was straight up who he was. No apologies. I fired him. He's a great guitar player. He did, he says, he went on to, he, he did just fine. But he said, I fired him because he was too pretty and people were starting to come to see him. It's <laughs> my show. And while 
that's not the way I moved through my life. He was utterly authentic. And he was one of the creators. He, Chuck Berry, Carl Perkins, James Brown, Little Richard got burned big time vis-a-vis the money that was owed to him for what he did. So one can understand his reticence to be magnanimous. Yeah. But man, those whole opportunities, exactly what Chuck Berry wrote a song called Roll Over Beethoven and Tell Tchaikovsky the News. There are millions of kids who, when they heard that, had no freaking idea who Beethoven and Tchaikovsky were. But it was, if that inspires people to go back and say, you know, I've listened to a lot of three-chord rock and roll. It's pretty rudimentary. But this guy that Chuck, Menor, Chuck Berry mentioned, Tchaikovsky, holy smoke. <laughs> wait till you hear the Nutcracker. Or wait till you hear stuff that's every year we want to hear with our family or you know what I mean so you're 100% correct that lineage of good work of important cultural work is ongoing it's an unbroken line it is and I today to this day my reasonably recent recording heroes or performance heroes are Donald Fagan I, I think that if they give out a Kennedy Center award for the one of the premier contemporary composers it's pretty difficult not to look at Donald Fagan of Steely Dan who at 75 now has been producing writing and recording high level work for 50 years that's impossible in this business Justin McCartney of course we know about them mm -hmm. but it goes on and on and every one of them if you talk to Donald Fagan it's oh yeah Ella Mel Torme Sinatra arrangers it'll Gordon Jenkins Billy May on and on and on and on and again people who do incredible arrangements that inspire Donald Fagan to do in, in arrangements that I've listened to a hundred times and I hear them because I can listen to them now with incredibly sensitive instruments that were not in a round when I was 20. I, I can listen to expensive but really good purchasable headphones and an HD recording. And I literally hear the nuance of genius anytime I want to. Things I never heard on the radio or even listening to records years ago on pretty good headphones. Now I can afford to get really good ones. And I hear stuff that makes me go, oh, well, that's why that guy's not just a really excellent composer. He's a genius. Mm -hmm. There's a difference. And I've gotten to work with a lot of people who are geniuses and stars. I'm good at my job. I'm really good at my job. But Jesus, I ought to be. But there's a difference between a guy like me and a star. And I got to work with Bernadette Peters on Animaniacs. I'm a really good singer. Bernadette Peters is a star. And when you really get to hear and sit next to them and see how they operate, you kind of go, oh, okay, I, <laughs> I get this. I got a lot to, Phil Hartman was a dear friend and taught me a lot. He was a star. I knew Phil for years before I got SNL. I think he was eight years older than I. In fact, he called me the day he got in October of 86. And Phil was one of those people whom I referred to his face as terrifyingly inspirational. Because I was like, I can't keep up with you. And he said, Robert, it's not about that. It's about you stealing from me. It's about you learning from me, from Pee -wee, uh, from Paul Rubens, from the rest of us. Robin, uh, Jonathan Winters, all of us. He never called himself a genius, but he really was. Really a different level. So I am the grateful beneficiary of profound profoundly gifted and giving kind people who took the time to let me in and say, yeah, you're pretty good. Here's what I think you should do. Why am I glad I listened? Well, Rob, you mentioned some of these bands that you were in when you were younger. Were you always the vocalist? Did you ever pick up an instrument? Any interest there? Yes, a lot of it, but I was never as good as the P. I, I, you know what I didn't have, Justin? I didn't have the discipline to sit down and learn an instrument because I found out that as a good singer, as a 17 or 18 year old, I had my axe right here. And the kids I was working with, who were all pretty good for a bunch of 18, 20 year olds, they were, you know, we had two guitar, a bass player and a guitar player in my high school band. 
both of them have been taking guitar lessons, bass and guitar respectively, for six years at oh. 18, every week. They knew to read music. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they knew how, we all knew how to read music in high school. The keyboard player had been taking piano lessons since she was five. Oof. And the drummer was taught drumming to little kids and still took drumming lessons at age 18. And I was 18 and I'd been singing since I'd been little and working on it every day for the same reason that these other kids did because they couldn't not do it. It was a Jones. So I learned pretty quickly that like, I can't do that and can't do that. And frankly, I don't have the time to learn, but they want me to sing because they feel I can sing at the same level they can play at. It, it was true. I am now in a position where I'm a little bit older and I have some, well, actually I don't have as much time as I thought I had. I, I'm really busy. I would love to learn. I plink on the guitar, but I really would love to learn to play it. My guitar and bass, I, I am such a fan of Nathan East, Jaco Pastorius, mm. John Whistle, John Paul Jones, Charlie Mingus, you know, you name it. Uh, 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 all sorts. Victor Cl Wooten. Vic yeah. <laughs> Stanley Clark, by the same token, David Gilmore. For my money, the very best guitar player that is alive right now is Jeff Beck. Uh, uh, that guy gets better and better, and he's 75 years old. Obviously, Clapton's still playing. I can't even, they go on and on. Alan Holdsworth, Al DiMiola, again, the usual suspects. I Eddie, sadly, is gone, and he and I both suffered from the same type of throat cancer. I was lucky that I got mine. But obviously, all those guys, man, they're just, and, and girls. One of my favorite bass players now is Tal Wilkenfeld. I don't know if you know Tal. I'm not familiar. Tal, check her out. T-A-L Wilkenfeld, W-I-L-K-E-N, I think it's F-E-L-D or F-I-E-L-D, I don't know. But she's been for a long time in Jeff Beck's band with Vinnie Kaliuta, just crazy good players. Jeff discovered her when she was like 23. And when you see this lady play her Fender fretless bass, mind-blowing. And for a guy like Jeff Beck, who's old enough to be almost her great-grandfather, say, you want to come on the road with us? What does that tell you? So... It all is to remind us that no matter how good we get, no matter how big we feel we've gotten, or how technically big to the extent that people make a fuss over me or you or anyone else, there are real stars, real geniuses who have paved the way in ways that I, I, could, I never quite understood until I got older. And it's not to cast aspersions on young people. It's just to make sure when you're young to take advantage of this technology that you now have where you can listen to any of the people I mentioned. And there would be a hundred others that I can't think of at the moment would, uh, you know, obviously Roy Clark, rest his soul, David Grisman, Jean-Luc Ponty, incredible violinist, incredible players. Uh, we have the technology now where you can punch in any name that you hear from your friend, Justin, and say, yeah, this guy, Rob Paulson was talking about Isaac Stern. I don't know who Isaac, oh, I look him up. Oh, he's a very old man. I guess he plays the fiddle. And you listen to Isaac Stern, you go, holy smoke. The palm you find, of your hand. Right. And then you find out that Isaac Stern inspires a young Asian girl who's 17 and is now a prodigy. And her heroes were Isaac Stern and Itzhak Perlman, all of whom are older than I. And then you hear a 17-year-old who sits there with tears coming out of her face playing her fiddle at such a high level that you th you think, oh my God, this little girl's a genius who was inspired by the geniuses that those guys were at 15 when they were in Eastern Europe and had nothing but literally the clothes on their back and the parents finding a way to borrow a, a violin so they could take lessons. And then they, they rise to be Itzhak Stern, Itzhak Perlman or Isaac Stern or on and on and on. You, you see my point. Right. right. Same thing with rock and roll. So to this day, even though they fought like dogs, cats and dogs, when you hear 
Ronnie Wood and Jimmy Page and Keith Richard talk about Chuck Berry, they say, yeah, he was kind of an asshole, but I wouldn't be here if it weren't for Chuck or Carl Perkins. You know, I mean, it just, I get so passionate about it because I've experienced it. Mm -hmm. I've gotten to work with people who are no longer on the rock, but took the time. Jonathan Winters, more than once, saw that I was pretty clever. And Phil Hartman, Jonathan Winters, Paul Rubens, Pee Wee Herman, other people at an incredibly high level, took this knucklehead from Flint, Michigan aside and said, you're pretty fucking funny. <laughs> and you can sing. And you're not afraid to try anything. You should really pay attention. Irrespective of what you do for a living, your passion can be something different. There's a difference between your vocation and your avocation. If your avocation is high performance and high art and genius, take advantage of this technology, man. It's incredible. And no matter how good at whatever your passion is, if you ever want to be humbled, I guarantee you there's a, a 10 year old out there that can do what you're doing 20 times as good as you're doing. Yep, exactly. <laughs> and they're on TikTok all day long. When I joined TikTok a couple of years ago or a year ago, my wife said, hey man, there are a lot of people on TikTok that are emulating your characters. And I, firstly, let's make it clear. I don't draw them and I don't write them. I'm really good at my job, but I can't even draw stick figures. It is a <laughs> deeply collaborative effort. But I said, oh, okay. So the first thing I put on, I, I did a little research. I, I did a character called Carl Weezer on Jimmy Neutron, who says things like, hey, Justin, are you going to finish that croissant? I don't know why that makes people crazy, but it's great. So I did a little research. There were like 300 million views of different versions of Carl Weezer, none of which were me. <laughs> so I said, okay. So I did a little Carl Weezer thing. Hi, I'm really Carl, and I'm here to tell you that I have a crush on Jimmy's mom. Whatever. Well, within three days or four days, I had three million views. I don't look, thank God, like Carl. It takes about two seconds for people to verify that I am who I say I am. But you're right. There are kids on TikTok and YouTube and all that. I look at their stuff and they go, wow, this kid sings Yakko's World backwards. I can't do that. <laughs> then every time I think I'm really good, I listen to Peter Sellers from 50 years ago when he was maybe in his 30s. He's dead now, but I don't know. No, because he'd have been, no, he'd have been 90 or so. Anyway, he died way too early. And I was a huge, I am a huge fan of Peter Sellers. My all-time favorite movie is Dr. Strangelove. But whenever I feel like I'm getting good, I listen to old CDs of Peter Sellers from the 60s and the late 50s. And I think, holy shit, I got a long way to go to have an ear like that and to be that quick and that sharp and that subversive and that hip. Crazy. But... You're right. It's very humbling. And all it does is inspire me to get better. Rob, do you have a eureka moment that you can point to to where you decided to give the whole acting thing a chance back in the day? Yeah, probably, probably, honestly, Justin, when I was a little kid, I don't have a specific moment. I recall that my relatives and my mom and dad, I don't know about my siblings because I'm the oldest, but I was pretty much transfixed with, by Elvis when I was, I guess, about five. And according to my parents and our I vaguely remember I used to sing my version of Hound Dog. I tweaked the lyrics a bit because I didn't really know any better. And I'd say, you ain't nothing but an old ground hot dog. And my, my, my mom and dad knew that I loved Elvis. So they bought me a little guitar, plastic guitar that obviously I wore on a strap around my neck. And because I was the precocious youngster I was, I said, uh, this is my neck guitar. Pretty good. Neck guitar neck guitar. So my mom would introduce me as a now, ladies and gentlemen, Robin Paulson. My father was Robert Paulson Jr. I'm the third. My grandfather was senior. So I was Robin to differentiate. Robin Paulson and his neck guitar singing, you ain't nothing but an old ground hot dog. <laughs> and the one thing I do remember is the 
chemical, almost chemical feeling that one feels when, when you do something that you're just doing it to satisfy your soul. And all of a sudden you see a reaction that people just laugh or they, they go, come here, that's great. You get affection, you get joy, affection. Oh my God, he's so cute, whatever it was. <laughs> Even as you get older and you understand, they're going, if he sings that goddamn song one more time, I'm going to bust that <laughs> neck of tower over his head. But they let it go because that's cute. But they also see, you know, this kid really likes this. I mean, he's enjoying. Why would I put the kibosh on that? I also grew up playing hockey. I love, I still live for the Detroit Red Wings. I go out and bang around with my buddies all the time on the ice sheet of ice in Burbank. But it's no different. My parents saw that deep love of sport and encourage that too, just like millions of other parents. However, as I got older, I found that girls dig people who are funny almost as much as they dig guys who are great football players. <laughs> and I'm not a particularly handsome guy. I never was, but I'm, a, I'm not afraid to be funny. Moreover, I'm not afraid to be funny even after people say, I don't think it's funny. I don't, that doesn't dissuade me. Keep coming. I, I think I'm an, a jerk, but I learned pretty quickly that humor and the ability to make people smile is almost a superpower. So when it comes at the time that you're trying to impress a young, a young female peer and you're tired of doing it on the monkey bars and you say, uh, I'm going to do an impression of who, whatever. And it works. It doesn't take long for it to say, Hey man, there's something going on here. So my aha moment is a little bit sketchy, but it was absolutely when I was probably five or six years old, I had the biggest aha moment of my career before I moved to LA. And that was, I was in a very, very good cover band long after high school. I was probably 20, 21, 22. And these guys were really good. We were booked a year in advance. Oh, had wow. lots of originals, but we were booked in the Midwest a year in advance. Really excellent cover band. Very eclectic. Steely Dan, Emerson, Lake and Palmer, Led Zeppelin, The Who, George Benson, really good band, great players. And one night we were in our hometown, our home club called Mr. G's Lounge in Flint, Michigan. And we got to be the house band there. Although we traveled around, we'd come back there for two week stints every couple of months and place was jammed. And I learned a ton. And one night a fella named Mickey, I'll never forget him, who was a drunk. And I hope he still isn't if he's still alive, but he was and a happy drunk, but a drunk nonetheless. And he was a regular and I'll never forget we were doing rock and roll by Led Zeppelin. Great song. We got done and Mickey was standing with a Heine in each hand with his head in the speaker. Cabinet. And we were loud. We we're a rock and roll band. Tiny little club, right? Head in the speaker cabinet with a Heineken in each hand screaming and the song ends. Hey Rob, we took a break. Hey Robbie, I got to buy you a drink. Nah, I'm okay. I didn't drink. I don't drink. I had enough trouble keeping my shit together. So he said, let me buy you a drink. I said, I can buy me a Coke. Great. Buys me a Coke. And he looks at me, Justin, and as sober as a judge, in between Heineken's says, Rob, you guys are the best band in Flint. And he was right. We were the best bar band in Flint. Now Flint is also the home of Grand Funk Railroad, mm -hmm. but they were rock and roll stars by that <laughs> time. Okay. But he was right. And I was toying with moving to LA because it was time for me to finally jump in the big kids pool. Because mm -hmm. I'd already been on the road with the theater company and I love to sing too. And I didn't quite know how to break it because I love these boys. And I knew that if I left they did already i'd mentioned it they didn't want to go to la two of them were married i totally get it but i was not 
and I'm, I had to go and I, I didn't want to mess them up, but I, I had to go. And that was, holy shit, he's right. I got this aha moment, which I'm discussing with my new friend, Justin, 47 years later. And it was from a drunk guy named Mickey who got my attention by saying, you're the best band in Flint. And I could not forget that for the next couple of days. I thought, shit, I reckon it's time for you to do what you got to do. Do you know anybody in LA? No. Do you know how to get there? Well, yeah, I just get in my car and head west. I think I can figure that out. I had another high school friend of mine who wanted to move to LA. And about four months later, I, I left the band. And four months later, uh, after uh, I wanted, I helped them find a new singer. Oh no, they got a new singer. I think I, I left, they got a new singer. Then I worked at an odd job, a couple odd jobs to save money to go to LA. We left in June of 1978 and I haven't looked back, but it was Mickey who got my attention for the initial aha moment that it was, you've gone as far as you can go. It's not about these guys. They're fantastic. It's that you can't get any better and be in a position where people who can help you get better are around you. You got to go to LA or New York and LA's got the beach and you love cars and let's go to LA. So that's what I did. But that was a clear, very specific moment at which I knew that it was time to go. We're all thankful for Mickey. God bless. <laughs> Thank you. Great t-shirt. Thank God for Mickey. Yeah. About four of us who know what that means. Yeah. Well, Rob, obviously you've been in voice acting uh, since the early 80s. I wanted to ask you, how has the evolution of technology changed the behind the scenes part for you? What we're doing right now during COVID, my God, I was able to keep doing new episodes of Animaniacs and Pink in the Brain for the new Hulu version without missing a beat. Now in post-production, there are certain takes I've had to tweak because I got a little bit of room echo because I wasn't working in a Hollywood recording studio. Right. But I got to do it from home at Pillow Fort Studios with a bunch of goofy <laughs> pillows around my head and a great microphone. And there are pieces of Animaniacs that you will see in, in, the, in season two that were recorded at here where I am right now, at my vacation place on the Central California coast. Nobody knows the difference. That is not the case for friends of mine who are primarily on camera talent. They're out of work for quite a while. I didn't miss a beat. Plus, I got to do fan events. I had I don't know, 10 or 12 Animaniacs and concert dates and convention dates, obviously, that were kiboshed. I've probably done 10 dates between last March and this August online autographing at which, you know, I get paid a little bit. But even if people don't buy anything, it's like I am at a convention. I, you, ain't about to, you ain't got to buy a goddamn thing. I just want to hear your story. I want to see what happens to you when I say turtle power. <laughs> That's what happens and, and it's the greatest and that's what I want. So I get to do that via this new technology. That's changed a lot. What hasn't changed is my process, my desire. I still break down a script the same way. I still jump in with both feet. If a, if a producer says, I've got another character here that's got eight lines. We really don't know what we want. We haven't cast anybody. What have you got? I don't say, hmm, I don't know. Can I get back to you? I say, oh, let me see. Boom. And I'm not the only one. We all, Billy West does that, John DiMaggio, Tom Kenny, Maurice LaMarche, we all do that. So that hasn't changed at all. But the opportunity to work, be in touch with people all over the world, make new friends like you and your audience, I, I can't imagine being alive at a more interesting time. At the same time that it's so difficult for so many reasons, you and I and people who do this have an incredibly wonderful opportunity to take advantage of that phrase, we're all in this together. And I mean, from a utterly altruistic way, mm -hmm. we are all in this together. COVID, racial issues, political issues, lockdowns, masks, you name it. But we also have this incredible, relatively new opportunity to connect with people literally around the world 
in an instant and help them smile, inform, respectfully disagree, and have a cogent, thoughtful discussion about an important issue. Hopefully help them to be their best selves, just like they're doing the same for me. But never in human history has this opportunity been so available to us. We, know, we now know without doubt that there are climate issues we have to talk about. Young children are, have this technology available to them. They're going to grow up if they choose to be. And if they have people who are responsible enough to understand what good parents do and say, yeah, I want you to play video games. I want you to do this. I want you to do TikTok. But remember, you can access the Library of Congress that fast. You can listen to every inauguration speech from every president ever. You can listen to all four of Franklin Delano Roosevelt's inauguration speeches. You can read George Washington's inauguration speech word for word. And many of the words are such that they're not even around anymore. Nobody uses vicissitudes anymore. It shows up in George Washington's acceptance speech. So you see my point. This crazy opportunity can be used for so much good. And that is exactly what you are doing. And you should be applauded for it. Well said, Rob. One aspect of voice acting that seems to come up a lot that people may not necessarily associate with voice acting is improv. Oh, tons of it. But yeah, look at that. I believe this. Look at I didn't know you were going to say this. Look oh, at look at that. Look at How that. about that? <laughs> That's, oh. That was given to me by a group of kids who have a killer improv group in Tennessee. And I did a little playing with them one night on stage. And I couldn't have been more flattered had they given me a goddamned Oscar. The fact that they set aside and said, Mr. Paulson, we really said, please call me Rob, unless you're with the IRS, then I understand. <laughs> um, we really would love for you to have this and wear it proudly. And I do, because improv is a huge deal for people who do what we do, precisely because of what I referred to earlier. Think it on your feet. Rob, you do Don Knotts, right? You do Barney Fife? Well, I do an okay Barney Fife, but if you want a guy to really channel it, you should call Jeff Bennett. Jeff Bennett is the voice of Johnny Bravo and a bunch of zillion other ones. And he is a world-class impressionist. I am not. But I said, hell, I'll give it a try. And I said, well, we're looking for a character. It's a show called Ben 10. We're looking for a character that we'd like to try kind of a Barney Fife thing. I said, oh, let's see what we got. And I'll give it a try. <laughs> so that's what they did. They started laughing. And because I had confidence in my ability to think on my feet from improv, I jumped in. And I said, I hope you like that. I said, that sounds great. You know, we love Jeff. He's coming in next week. We'll get another thing. Let's go with that. Well, because I wasn't afraid to play on that one episode, it really resonated with the producers. They wrote it into 12 more. I made 12 more checks, did 12 more episodes with my good friends, Tara Strong and Yuri Lowenthal. And John DiMaggio was on that show too. All because I was fearless, as Billy West says. I don't mean fearless jumping into a burning building. I would if it was my family or maybe someone I could help, but I'm not a firefighter. I'm just a freaking actor, but fearless in the context of, of being totally unselfconscious. I don't care if people think I look silly. Right. These people are giving me an incredible opportunity right now. Don't think about it. Jump at it. And that is something that all of us can use in our own lives. The trick is knowing when it's there. The trick is knowing when Mickey is telling you it's time for you to, that's the trick. And I have also missed opportunities that I didn't know uh, were there. Do I regret them? No, because I learned what to look for. And I've had too many, I've had more because of the missing of them. I've had more that I've nailed because I was aware of it. But yeah, improv is a very big deal. And I, I recommend it for anybody. Even if you're not interested in being an actor, you may never know. One day your podcast may be picked up or maybe it is uh, by a podcast network 
and there's a giant podcasting seminar and we're going to get Justin Young to speak in front of 500 of our casters. Now, you may or may not be a comfortable extemporaneous speaker, but if you are, that's a whole nother skill set that you can develop at any age to say, wow, I can speak in front of my church. I can speak in front of my uh, podcast network group. I can speak in front of my sales team. I am the sales manager of, you know, 15 hobby lobbies in the, in the Midwest. And we're having a, uh, a get together and I'm the keynote speaker for how to increase sales at Hobby Lobby. For many people, that'd be like, oh my God, oh my God, do I have to do this? Well, yeah, you're the sales manager. I reckon you better figure it out. The opportunity to learn to do stuff like that will never fail you. Like learning music. Even if they say, hey, Justin, you play the piano, right? Yeah, I'm pretty good. Well, we're having a, we're having a really great get together for Christmas. Gonna be a little punch, maybe even some edibles because we live in California. But could you play the piano? Sure, I can read music. That is a big deal. So that's why I encourage people to look at improv, maybe take classes in public speaking. It just gives you confidence, not necessarily because you have to be in the theater department, but it's another aspect of your humanity. It sounds pretty high and mighty, but trust me, if you get the call that you've got to be the speaker in front of a hundred people and you have trouble speaking at your kid's career day in front of a bunch of eight-year-olds, you're going to want that skill and it's easy to cultivate. So that's why I love improv. Yeah. Irrespective of whether you are deemed a great orator is not the issue. The issue is that you were able to live that axiom, again, courage with a small C. I'm, I realize that this is not like being in battle. But courage in any form is not the absence of fear. It's pushing through despite the fear. That's right. courage. We all are nervous. We are all frightened. You were frightened at that class. Oh, yeah. I, I guarantee you that what you ended up with was at least the knowledge that you could walk and chew gum on your feet. Yep. If needed, to, if needed and it didn't kill you. And I mean that seriously because there are people who have such anxiety that's crippling for them. My advice is not to become an actor. My advice is to maybe take a tip from a guy like Justin. You know, find something that terrifies you a little bit, small t, and try it. Because the experience ultimately is just going to make you better. Life is experiences. You know? Period. End of story. You're not saying, I've got to be a, an extemporaneous speaker the rest of my It's not the point. You now have an experience by which you've learned that you figured something out about yourself. You pushed through the fear. You did it. You reached your bar. And that sets the tone for any other thing that you want to accomplish that is a bit daunting. And it turns out that courage, strength, wisdom, kindness, empathy, like love, come from the most unexpected places. How many people do we know that said, I swear to God, man, I was at Home Depot and I asked this woman if I could help her load this mini fridge in her car. And we just started talking and one thing led to another. And she said, I never do this, but I really think you're a nice guy, Justin. Would you, I never do this. Here's my email address. I don't want yours. If you're interested, I'd love to talk to you some more. And then they're getting married. You know what I mean? It comes from the most unexpected places. And if your courage in any realm of your life is heightened by the experience that you gain pushing through that fear of, of speaking, then it was totally worth it, man. And that's why I love that you are, you bring that stuff up. It's so important and you are doing exactly what I talked about. You're providing a service over and above your ability to entertain. We're kind of dancing around this. So I'll just ask you, what would you say is the best 
piece of advice, not, not just acting, just maybe advice in general that you've received to this date? I co-opted the phrase in Reader's Digest that used to be at the end of every magazine, a little magazine that I used to love when I was a kid, because there were always jokes at the end of the magazine. And the title for the jokes you were about to read was Laughter is the Best Medicine. And I co-opted that. And I say, laughter is the best medicine, semicolon. The cool thing is you can't OD and the refills are free. And as a person who is a fairly recent survivor, they use the term survivor. I, I think that's a little high and mighty for me because people had it far worse, but that's the, that's the term. For a recent survivor of stage three metastatic squamous cell carcinoma of the throat, I can tell you that when I was really struggling with my throat cancer, I had many people who saved my life in so many ways, not the least of whom was my dear friend, Maurice LaMarche, my friend, the brain. And like, here we go again, folks, look what happens to Justin. <laughs> Every time. <laughs> Isn't that something? My friend, the brain, four words, and look what happens to you. You haven't stopped. Mo would come to visit me unannounced. He knew that where I was getting my treatments in, in Beverly Hills at a chemo cancer center. Very difficult place to be, as you can imagine. But I'll tell you something. When the people found out who I was, everybody got a real chuckle and enjoyed meeting Yakko and Raphael. And sometimes the next week, a doctor or a patient would bring in their turtle action figure from the assignment. Incredible stuff, incredible stuff. But when Maurice showed up, just because he could, and that's what friends, as the song goes, are for, I didn't ask him. Pinky and the Brain were now in the house, and it was glorious. I had an older woman who we had, I should say, who was, uh, according to our mutual chemo nurse, she was undergoing palliative care. She was on her way out. But she was there with her chemo on a, you know, the little thing that rolls around, talking to everybody with her bandana or, you know, her babushka, all, all that heartbreaking. Spirit, kindness, joie de vie, pinky in the brain, nut. When she found out that the two of us were there, hey, God, look, I love your hair. You, you look like Shaq. You've got a bald head just like Shaq and you're not as tall. Laughing to tears. And then Maurice said, yes, my dear. Maybe you can help us take over the, the doctors, the nurses, the, the staff, the patients. It was all about the joy of Pinky and the goddamn brain being there. They didn't know who the hell we were, but once Mo started riffing, it was over. That is such a profound gift. Just like to love and be loved, to laugh and cultivate laughter is pretty close just below to love and be loved. That's the greatest gift we can all give each other. It's the next step. It's the next step. Mm -hmm. And often one supports the other. Right. How many times in, with your wife have you said, have you had to find a way to laugh at something? She already knows you love her. You already know she loves you. We got that. But sometimes it's really hard to laugh. Like love, like a marriage, you got to work at it. You got to work at finding a way. All right, how do I make this funny without offending her? And then you hit it. And she looks at you sometimes through tears and says, God, I love you. I'm so glad I married you. Yesterday, I wasn't so sure, but right now, <laughs> I'm so glad you made me laugh. Let me tell you what Justin just did. No, you made me laugh. It's huge, buddy. So laughter is a really big deal. Also, what I've learned, what I learned through the cancer was that there are times in your life when it's got to be just okay to be enough. I'm a perfectionist with respect to my work, but I'm not a perfectionist about obviously a slave to fashion about my kid at eight years old spilled chocolate ice cream on a white couch. I want to keep the couch because it reminds me of a time when my kid was laughing so hard that he spilled ice cream on the couch. With respect to my work, I can be a perfectionist. I think all of us try to be, but I had to learn the hard way because I, I went back to work a little soon from my throat cancer treatment. It was brutal. It beat the shit out of me. Mm. I was told it would, and it did. It also cured me. I'm fine. The glorious aspect of my cancer is not that I got through it. 
it is for me, but for the public writ large. It is about you being so kind and giving me this opportunity that we never know down the road when somebody's going to hear Justin's podcast and says, hey, man, I just heard this guy, Uncle Jerry, you just got diagnosed with throat cancer. I know, I know, I know. But listen, listen. Remember how you turned me on to Pinky and the Brain in college? This guy who we listened to in college just got through what you're fixing to deal with. But you've been watching Animaniacs and Pinky and the Brain on Hulu, right, Uncle Jerry? Yeah, yeah. That's Rob Paulson. He had exactly what you're going to do. He lost 50 pounds. He can't taste food. He's a little bit different now. But listen to him. That's the story. You got this, Uncle Jerry. You got people who love you. You got cutting edge medical care. God bless you. Got insurance, thank God. And you got people who love you. You're going to be fine. This guy does it for a living. And Steven Spielberg said, oh, okay, let's go. Let's do it again. And no one is any the wiser. That's why your show is important. Not because of me. I'm going to work. But my story is way more important because I have throat cancer. And for me, it's not a silver lining, my friend. It's a platinum lining. And so I tell people, give yourself a break. I got back to work too soon. It was difficult. And when I heard what I thought I needed to fix from before I had cancer, I went in the booth and they played it for me. And they said, we're going with this, Rob. It's fine. I was the one who had a problem with it. And I learned to say, they're fine. You got to be fine too. That was beautifully said, my friend. Thank you. And so, yeah, give yourself a break and laugh. <laughs> well, Rob, I'm not going to keep you all afternoon here. Uh, it's been wonderful talking to you, but I do want to ask, uh, what else do you have on the horizon? Where can folks find you? Well, I'm thinking about getting throat cancer again because I had such a great time. No, I, um, you know what? We're Rick, we're working on season three of Animaniacs. Season two hasn't even aired yet. Pinky in the Brain too, as well. I'm getting back on the road doing live appearances. I was just back to my first convention since COVID, getting through COVID con. I was in uh, Indianapolis a couple weeks ago. If folks want to uh, keep in touch with where I'll be, they can do two things. Go to animaniacslive.com, which will show you where my partner, Randy Rogal and I are doing Animaniacs concerts around the country. They can follow me on Twitter, at Yakko Pinky, all one word or all lowercase. What? Y-A-K-K-O-P-I-N-K-Y. Nerf. They can follow me on TikTok, Rob Paulson, R-O-B-P-A-U-L-S-E-N 311, which is my birthday, all lowercase. Instagram, Rob underscore Paulson, S-E-N. And Facebook, Rob Paulson, voice actor. And all of those areas will give you way more info than you care to know about yours truly. And moreover, the opportunity to hopefully meet each other at these events around the country and the world. I'm going to be in the UK twice next year so far. So as I've said, and I'm damn serious, we have to charge when we go to these events because it helps offset the cost of the promoter bringing a bunch of talent there. Right. However, you're going to hold me to it. I hope you're recording this. You don't have to buy a thing from me. If you're willing to wait, I am willing to wait and meet you. And that's the God's honest truth. So either get in touch with me via social media and we'll, you know, meet or come meet me in person and we'll laugh in real time and say, cowabunga together. That was beautiful. You went above and beyond. (laughs) My pleasure, buddy. Thank you very much, man. You've been a total delight and it's no wonder why you're so good at this gig, pal. You keep it up. Thank you, Rob. You have a great day, man. All right, man. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye now. Welcome to the night. You think you know Night Demon? Then the Night Demon Heavy Metal Podcast is for you. Step into the darkness as we peel back the curtain to give you an unprecedented, all-access look into the mind and the heart of the demon. We're talking band history, song analysis, studio anecdotes, stories from the road. It's everything a diehard Night Demon fan could want and more. This is the only place to learn the inside scoop, 
the deep dive trivia, the untold tales from the band members themselves and those closest to the Night Demon story. Need more? The sacred Night Demon crypt will be pried open to reveal demo recordings that have never before seen the light of day. All with in-depth commentary by the band and the people who were there for the writing and recording process. This is a gold mine, a treasure trove of all things Night Demon. Head over to nightdemon.net or wherever you listen to podcasts.